0: Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and the 16th episode of Greens with Envy, but the first episode of Greens with Envy, where Guy and I are back in the studio together. In almost three months, the last five episodes we recorded from my home office and from the inside of Guy's rental car as he was driving back across the country a few months ago from California, the driving through cover story in the May issue, if you missed that, Guy socially distancing on the road, avoiding airlines. But we're back in the studio, Greens with Envy, the podcast where we talk about where we've been and what we've done. Obviously, we're in the third month of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we have not had much travel, but there is a lot of news in the golf world uh, and in the golf maintenance world, Guy, to really catch up on. Before we get into any of that, how are you? What are you doing? Your life hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot, but how are you holding up?
1: No, since I've been back from California, which was in early April, I made that drive across the country. It's been normal for me. I don't have a child. So I don't have to worry about childcare. They were letting some people into our office in limited number. So I had just been coming in here and working as is. Uh, the golf courses were still open. The running trails were still open. The hiking trails were still open. The waterways were still open and the grocery stores were still open. So really my life, luckily we're very fortunate in this situation, had not changed much. So it was business as usual Uh, doing the things that needed to be done for golf course industry, at least from my perspective as editor. Matt, why don't you tell the listeners, though, what your life's been like the last few months and some of the
0: the challenges that you faced doing your your job? Well, I mean, everything is comparative and relative, and you can only face the challenges that are placed in front of you. And, And compared to a lot of other people, I don't think that we had great challenges, my wife Carolyn and I, and our almost four-year-old daughter, Margot, because you know we're both still employed, which is very strange to consider when we're both in media, and we were in media in the 08 and 09 uh, recession, and, and that was a completely different beast. Uh, we're covering industries that were affected, but not ov- incredibly overly affected in, in golf course maintenance, and my wife covers the orthopedics device industry, and our daughter is in daycare, and while that closed for about three months and it opened back up this week, we're sending her back in, in a, next week uh, When by the time this airs. We didn't have any remote learning challenges. We didn't have to deal with Zoom classes. Uh, we just kind of took her outside whenever she would let us because she's a tyrant and try to take her into nature and take her on walks and teach her all these things that you would like to teach your kids if you had time. It was mentally draining some days because I normally didn't start working until about noon. And by that point, I'd been with her for five or five and a half hours and was just mentally and physically exhausted. And there were days when I would get into the chair at 1215 and just want to take a nap rather than record a podcast or call a superintendent or a director of agronomy. But it was a good challenge. And, and obviously, we're not anywhere close out of the woods yet. There's a, there's a long way to go. I think nationally and globally, but you know, you face the challenges that are placed in front of you. We talked with a lot of people for the June issue about that all across the golf course maintenance industry, and we'll get into some of those folks today. But you do what you can and you do what you have to do and, and you move on. Our bigger challenge right now is that my as we speak, my father in law, my brother in law, and one of my wife's uncles are working on the platform by our back steps at our house because the wood was rotting. We decided to replace the pillar, and then we figured, ah, we'll replace the platform too, going from the steps into the the back door. And the next thing we knew, the platform was up, and lo and behold, that is actually the roof of our cellar, which is full of junk. So we have a sheet down there that's covered with just old, chipped, rotting wood, and I think they're working away. So that's the bigger challenge now. Uh, Margot, our almost four-year-old, is running around having the time of her life with her Aunt Holly. We take a
1: lot of strength from, from our readers, and we also take a lot of ideas from our readers. Mm-hmm. People would wonder, what does maintaining a golf course have in common with operating a magazine? And I would say that we're very similar to our readers in the sense that we can adapt To whatever's going on either in our building or in our publishing world or in the golf industry or just external factors like a pandemic, we can adapt quickly and find a way to get the job done. And that's certainly what we've done. And Matt's done an excellent job of doing that while balancing his duties as a a father and husband. And yeah, it's been business as usual for for us. We've been really fortunate. I, I know I've already said that, but just like our readers, we, f- we find a way to g- get the job done and try to do it to the to the best of our abilities.
0: Well, and, and there are a lot of people in the industry, too, who do have older kids or do have younger kids, for that matter. A couple of them who I talked with for the June cover package, Adam Ikemas from the Michigan GCSA. Uh, I think his kids are four and seven. And so there were a lot of remote learning challenges that he faced. Uh, Scott Thayer, at the legends club up in minnesota talked with him for the same story within that package and his kids are older i'm blanking on the ages i think they're both 10 or older and so those were challenges too. getting remote setup making sure everybody has their own device making sure everybody's in their own room for learning helping them with that learning i know scott was working like five hours a day with his kids for a couple of weeks maintenance was shut down for almost two weeks in Minnesota, so he couldn't even go to the course. It was the longest, longer than he'd ever been away for even a family vacation. And five hours a day with his kids, and I think three or four hours a day for a while working on basically lobbying state legislators and, and state politicians to get golf course maintenance back up and running, if not courses themselves. So there were a lot of people in this industry, those are just naming two, but there were a lot of people in this industry who had uh, different challenges. And you're right, there's I think the perfect word for anybody in this industry is is adaptation or adapting, uh, always able to adapt to whatever's flung at you.
1: Matt, why don't you tell our listeners a little more about what the June cover story is about and describe some of the conversations you've had with people in the industry
0: over the last few weeks. So a spring of solidarity and stepping up, talked with, like I said, Scott Thayer and Adam Ikemas. Um, architect Chris Wolzinski for another story. I think Chris had, had some, uh, some home learning new challenges as well, just about some of the situations in some of the more challenging states like Michigan, uh, where governor Gretchen Whitmer had closed down courses for, for quite a while. And, and Chris, to name one, was not able to go onto any of his on-course projects for, gosh, I think two months. Minnesota was another course that, uh, state that had a lot of challenges, New Jersey, New York still, and we'll get into New York City proper here later in the podcast. I think the number now is about 98%, but as recently as, what, two, two and a half months ago, fewer than half of all courses, public and private, across the country, were closed. You couldn't play on them.
1: Yep, according to the National Golf Foundation, uh, 44% of the U.S. golf supply was open in early April. So that means that 56% of the courses were closed Mm -hmm. entering the spring.
0: So there was, there was making the case for golf in, in more challenged states and states where there were bigger hurdles to overcome. There were a lot of great examples of different folks stepping up and chipping in on maintenance, whether that was down at NC State University in Raleigh, North Carolina, where men's golf coach Prest McFall helped out on a greens mower at Lonnie Pool Golf Course. There were courses all over the country where you had club presidents or you had members in their 70s or even early 80s chipping in, talked with uh, some folks up in Washington. There was a, and this is in the story, but there was a course west of Seattle where there were a lot of 70-something members, including one 76-year-old man who we need to get on an episode of the podcast soon, who is the son of a superintendent, a 76-year-old who was the son of a, a superintendent. I think they were called greenskeepers back then, almost a century ago now, and he showed up to the club with his own mower, his own string trimmer, and his own gasoline. So folks showing up in droves. Obviously, there were, there were all sorts of folks chipping in. A story that had been on the website and was adapted a little bit more for the magazine, our friend Richard Buckley at Rutgers. He and his lab partner moved all of their equipment from the lab at Rutgers into Richard, into his, his empty bedroom, his empty extra bedroom, his partner into her garage and they figured out ways to communicate from 30 miles away when they would be working right next to each other for 10 hours a day as they get into the heavy summer season, you know, taking, taking all sorts of samples and it's superintendents dropping off samples on their porch if they didn't want to mail them through the post office. So everybody just, again, adapting and doing the best as they can to to kind of move forward to not not get lost in the moment, lost in the shuffle. All those
1: stories are tremendous, and they're inspirational in a lot of ways. And the one with Press McFall, the Mm -hmm. NC State men's golf coach, helping out Brian Green and his team at the Lonnie Pool Golf Course was in our Fast and Firm e-newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday. And I was thinking about this as I read your draft, Matt. Could you imagine if – Ed Ogeron hopped on a mower and helped the sports turf manager at Tiger Stadium, or Nick Saban hopped on a mower and helped the sports turf manager at Bryant-Denny Stadium. Well, I don't know what if what, anybody... what a big uh, big story would be. It just goes to show the appreciation that people have for the golf course superintendent and what he or she does, uh, the, the golf coaches at these universities are at the facility all day. They see what goes into creating the product that their players get to play on. And that's just a great example of somebody keeping the facility viable, keeping it maintained, making sure that NC State has that terrific asset going.
0: Well and that's it would be the top story on Sports Center or, or The Athletic or wherever you get your sports news. But I don't know if anybody would be able to understand what Coach O was saying if they tried to get a quote from him for riding a mower to help out at, uh, at death Valley.
1: It would be awesome. It would be awesome to see that guy on a, on a mower. And somehow LSU would turn that into a recruiting video to get, get uh, recruits fired up about the program and get their current (laughs) players even more excited about being a, I can't say it like coach O Tiger.
0: Coach O will drive through the wall. So you don't have to run through it.
1: Something like that. Go Tigers.
0: I don't know. Anyway.
1: Okay. So we mentioned uh, that, 98% of the golf courses in the United States are open right now, Mm -hmm. which brings us to the first headline we we have here. And this is the first time on greens with envy where we're going to do some recap of that, the headlines that are out there affecting the golf industry. And this one comes from the the New York post of all places. And it's not that sensationalistic by New York post standards, New York city golf courses devastated by continued coronavirus shutdown. So as of June 1st, The golf courses in New York City's five boroughs, which there are 13 of them, remain closed. They closed on March 22nd, and early in the story, Mark Cannizzaro, who covers golf for the New York Post, basically says uh, inexplicably they're closed, and that's a good word choice, and that's kind of soft by New York Post standards. So so you have these operators of these courses that have no revenue coming in, and it costs a lot to maintain a golf course everywhere in fact one of the um operators in the story mike giordano who operates marine park as the concessionaire is estimating that he's spending a hundred thousand per month to maintain the golf course with no revenue coming in
0: yeah i mean you're talking about 13 courses that serve the entire population of new york city and and probably then some so you're looking at eight I don't know what the population is now, eight, 8 or 9 million. You're looking at somewhere between a quarter to a third of 1% of the entire nation's population.
1: Well, well and the frustrating thing for these operators is that the courses in Westchester County and Norfolk.
0: Yeah, everywhere uh, else. Suffolk County
1: and, yeah. and Nassau County. Long Island. And Connecticut and New Jersey are open while they, within the city limits, they can't return to play at their golf courses. And, of course, the story details how there's been little communication from City Hall, I mean, there's a lot of problems in New York City right now Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, COVID-19 and some of the protests and other things going on. I'm sure golf's not on the top of the mind of the people that work in City Hall, but yeah, this is is frustrating for the people that love golf and that live in New York City and maybe can't get out to one of the suburban golf courses. I'm sure tee times are beyond difficult to get at a place like Bethpage State Park and Mm -hmm. some of the other ones. But uh, these operators and their employees are really facing the strain right now. And, and they're in a, a small group of courses right now because just 2% of the courses in the United States aren't open. And one of the courses affected by this is Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx, which is the oldest public golf course in the United States, opened in 1895. So, yeah, you read the story and there are a lot of frustrations. A gentleman named Michael Taft, who operates four of the courses, including Van Cortlandt Park, uh, has some very uh, telling quotes in there. Uh, he said that the people in New York City need it for their mental health. Our phones are ringing off the hook with hundreds of calls a day coming from our golfers asking, when are you opening? When are you opening? And we don't have an answer for them because we're not being told anything. And that's got to be frustrating when you're in the customer service business. And you know that's what golf is. It's a service. It provides a rec- recreational service to millions of people. And you don't have an answer for your customers. That's a very difficult situation to be in. And you still have expenses of maintaining your business. And another quote from uh, Taffet in the story, if I had a store, I can close the store and control the majority of my expenses. But with the golf course, it's a living entity. If we don't maintain it, it will die. And if it dies, you're talking about millions of dollars to get it back. I've got 10 years of my life and millions of dollars tied up into this.
0: Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, you look at this, uh, going back to Mike Giordano, who, again, operates Marine Park, is the concessionaire there. You know, He talks about having trespassers, and and they had uh, about a quarter of the golf courts destroyed recently after vandals broke into the cart barn. But the bigger issue is you've got all these expenses, and you don't have any revenue coming in. And I was reading this story, and a quote jumped out at me uh, from my notes of the last couple of months. It was from one of the GCSAA— town halls about COVID-19, I think it was about six weeks ago now, and they had Jay Karen on, uh, the CEO of the National Golf Course Owners Association, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this was April 13th, and Jay then said the difference between survival and shutting down a course for good could be whether that course was closed right at that moment. That was April 13th. That was now almost two months ago. And you've got courses that are are still closed, that are still hemorrhaging money. And I think the longer that this went on, you know, from March into April, at that point we knew that some courses would close and, and not come back. And now you get courses that are closed into June, not many, but, you know, there will be courses that this is their last season or they've already had their last season. That, sadly. and we've also uh, seen
1: stories on some courses that have just punted on 2020 and plan to reopen in 2021. You know, fortunately we haven't seen the mass number of immediate course closings that many people feared who knows, you know, with some of the lost revenue because of food and beverage and outings, what, what the fall may hold, but the number hasn't been alarmingly shocking yet. And a lot of these, you know, I I know here in Ohio, the city of Dayton is closing the majority of its golf supply and it's not related to COVID-19. It was something that the city was studying for a while and got the National Golf Foundation in to, to put together some reports for them and and basically the city decided about a month ago that they were going to get rid of I think it was eighty percent of their their golf supply somewhere around that that mm-hmm. number and you know COVID nineteen wasn't the reason that happened basically and you know this is this is what a lot of business experts will tell you that that the things that you're seeing that are being shuttered right now or, or eliminated aren't necessarily directly related to COVID-19 and the pandemic the the that, that it's just ex- the pandemic has expedited
0: some decisions that were probably going to mm-hmm. be made anyway and we're going to see that in golf too. Yeah. Your point about outings I think is a perfect transition to the next story that you pulled which is that Pleasant Valley among many other prominent courses allowing public play on Mondays for I think this was the first Monday out of four over the next five Mondays. And that's because a lot of outings have been canceled and they're just trying to find ways to make up revenue. So now is the time. If you're in that part of the country, Pleasant Valley Country Club, uh, you might be able to get a tea time on June 8th, 15th or or 29th and look around. There might be a private club closer to you uh, that you have not been able to play for years that you might be able to get on on a Monday here coming up soon.
1: Yep, and for those that aren't familiar, this story comes from the telegram.com in Worcester, Massachusetts. Pleasant Valley Country Club is in Massachusetts, and many of our listeners might be familiar with the name because it was a longtime PGA Tour and LPGA Tour uh, tournament site. In fact, the PGA Tour conducted 32 events there. Uh, The LPGA Tour uh, conducted... 13 events there, including, uh, several LPGA championships. So it's a very high profile golf course in Massachusetts. And it was, it was for sale mm-hmm. before the pandemic and it was on life support. People thought that maybe the course would get sold and, and be developed, but the, the course was pulled off the market, uh, recently, uh, the, the, um, ownership that is familiar with the club is, is going to. Operate it for now, and yeah, so they've lost a lot of outside events, as have you know pretty much every golf course in the, in the country, right? There aren't a lot of outside events going on right now. So Pleasant Valley Country Club uh, is opening itself up for public play on on some June Mondays. Seventy five bucks a golfer can uh, can play eighteen holes. Riding, I don't know what the golf market's like in Worcester, Massachusetts. That seems a little bit low. I I think that they could do that here in Northeast Ohio with some of our uh, bigger name private courses and open them up on Monday when they're going to have outside out- outings and probably charge 100, $125, twenty five, one hundred and fifty bucks to generate some re- revenue. Especially and, in that and Boston market, we're going to yeah. we're going to see more stories like this because uh, there are going to be places this summer that are going to have no outside outings, and they're a significant portion of revenue and and you know maintenance the whole golf operation the whole country club operation relies on that money and in terms of maintenance some of the the money that's generated through those outside outings go towards the maintenance budget and go to improvements such as such as new equipment or maybe a small bunker renovation or some drainage repairs so uh, you know if this is this is a good thing in some cases if your if your club is really needs that outside revenue i mean it, it's Low risk. I mean, just one day a week, you take it away away from the members. The course was already going to be taken away from the members that day of the week, and let some outsiders experience the golf course. You know, you 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 charge a pretty hefty green fee, and you know who knows? Maybe some of the people that are playing the the golf course on these uh, public play Mondays become eventual members. So, golf courses are going to get creative in a lot of ways to to make up for lost revenue. You're even going to see some of that creativity in the private club side, Mm -hmm. and. I'm just hoping some of the courses here in Northeast Ohio do this because there are uh, some Mondays that I would love to go and play some of these courses that we don't have a chance to play every day. And, uh, you know, I I see it as being a a win-win. It's a win for the the, the golfers who get to play some courses, like I said, that they normally don't have access to. And it's a win for the facility to to generate some money that hopefully goes back into
0: the the maintenance of the facility. Your point on creativity made me think. We were talking the other day about, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, a A minor league baseball team down in the Florida Panhandle, and how they, of all teams, have gotten really, really creative. And there are a lot of out-of-the-box thinkers in minor league baseball. You have to get butts in the seats, and you have to find ways to give people a good time while also collecting some money to keep the lights on. And what Pensacola has done, in lieu of having 70-plus home games this year, is they've had movie and fireworks nights. They've had all sorts of different events. They are actually renting out the park for Airbnb, uh, as an Airbnb for, I think, what is it, $1,500 a night. And you see this in the wild, woolly world of minor league baseball. I don't know that you'd see something like this at a private club, but it wouldn't surprise me if there are some some public clubs out there, some public courses out there that have out-of-the-box, non-traditional thinkers who are trying to find different ways to bring in revenue. And Pine Valley's idea of. Opening. Pleasant Valley. I'm Let, sorry. Let's I'm not sorry. No, have not. our
1: listeners think Pine Valley's getting open up to Pine the Pine Valley's
0: not opening. You know where my, my head is. Just imagine what they could charge for a Monday game. $500 around minimum. I would say more than that. 500 for the front nine. <laughs> Pleasant Valley. Yeah. No. Uh, no, I mean, you get. Thank you for the correction. You get Pleasant Valley uh, thinking outside the box and, and letting folks come in who are not members. And I think you'll see more and more of that. But I am interested to see what. Private clubs and public courses, both, uh, do to kind of bring in some extra revenue here in 2020.
1: Matt, you host trivia games. I'm going to ask you a question right now. What PGA Tour player is a part owner of the Blue Wah- Wahoos?
0: Uh, Bubba? I don't know.
1: Yep, Bubba oh, Watson. Okay, okay. He, he's from the uh, Florida Panhandle and makes sense. Still spends a lot of time there, and yep, he's uh, invested heavily in that community by owning part of the minor league baseball team. So we'll stay in New England for our next headline, and this one is troubling in multiple ways. The source here is the Connecticut Post, and the headline is Yale Golf Course Closed Through End of July. For those listeners that aren't familiar, the Yale Golf Course is an architectural masterpiece. It was designed by C.B. McDonald and Seth Rayner. The people that rate golf courses quite frequently have Yale as one of the top 100 uh, classic golf courses in the United States.
0: Arguably the best college course in the country yep, as well.
1: It's topped some of those rankings. And the Yale golf course, which hasn't been open since November, is closed through at least the end of July, according to the course's website. And I actually went on there this morning, and, yeah, it's posted right up there. And there's really no set date for the reopening. Uh, not only that, but the, the the golf course is functioning without a superintendent right now, Scott Ramsey. Uh, who was there for a long time, just a terrific superintendent, a former winner of a golf course industry super social media award for his uh, Twitter account. He left earlier this year to become the superintendent at country club of Farmington. So, you know, Scott really never had a huge budget during his time there and did terrific work to maintain some of these unique architectural feature. You know, they have a beer hole and some other template holes and some really bold features that takes some intricate maintenance to, to preserve. And Scott took it a lot upon himself to make sure that that was going on a limited budget. He's no longer there. And also the uh, director of golf is leaving too. So think about this. One of the architectural masterpieces, a a golf course that's on top 100 lists does not have a superintendent, a director of golf or a date when it's going to reopen.
0: What a mess. Well, and I think part of this, too, and, and they talked with Scott for the story, uh, and uh, Scott Ramsey, and, and he says that golf course runs as a university facility, not as a golf course. So before anything else, it's intricately tied to that Ivy League institution. Quote, this is a complete and utter guess, but if the campus opens for the fall semester, I think the golf course would probably follow along. And now Scott's not there anymore, obviously. He's been gone for a couple months by now, but... He was there for 17 years. He knows the ins and outs. He knows the intricacies of the situation. He can say it's a complete nutter guess, but it's a much more educated guess than anybody in the general public or even a lot of people in the golf community. And I think that is what you're looking at, that if Yale opens its campus for the fall, and that's not necessarily going to happen. We'll see. I don't think every school is going to open for the fall. But if they do, I think that course is going to reopen with it. If it doesn't open for the fall, yeah, you're probably looking at a complete punt on 2020 for, for that course, uh, going from November of 19 until whenever in early 2021.
1: Ivy League politics, man. I'm glad that my job is not <laughs> tied to that. But it, here's another huge course. endowments
0: that they're not using right now. If
1: you thought about, if you think about it, if there weren't all the layers of bureaucracy and some of the political correctness that maybe comes along with an Ivy League school. And they just open the course up to the public while students are away, and while faculty isn't coming on campus every day, and 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 charged 100 to 125 a hundred to one hundred twenty five bucks around to play the Yale golf course, and kept it maintained, and hired a superintendent, and and let him or her do her do her thing and keep the course in working condition. That would probably be a financial success, but this isn't about finances. This is more about bureaucracy right now, and and let's hope that. The course reopens at some point later this summer. Let's hope they find a superintendent. Let's hope they find a director of golf. Let's hope that the university realizes that it has a treasured asset here and that you know it would be a shame if a golf course like that, a C.B. McDonald, Seth Raynor design, top 100-type golf course, deteriorated because of the
0: situation. Yeah, and, and it's emblematic of a larger issue, which is way too big for – one segment on one podcast, but which is the, the tie between colleges and college sports. And they're an important part of our fabric. They're an important part of our country, but the NCAA on the whole is an imperfect organization. This does not have that much to do with the NCAA, but it ties in with everything else uh, that that's just rotten about the NCAA. And, what are you going to say?
1: Well, I worked at a university golf course. I, I yeah. spent a few seasons working for uh, Rick Paget and Scott Martell and Don Chester at the sure. Penn State golf courses when I was working at the Center Daily Times. As a full-time sports writer, I worked there around my full-time job because I just missed being on a golf course. And it was a hobby job for me. And the golf course was operated by the athletic department, right? It doesn't work as a for profit right. golf enterprise like the courses it, it competes against in town. And you know, we, we could do podcast upon podcast about this, but a lot of these golf courses that have affiliations with universities, in fact most of them aren't operated the same as a golf course that's a business. And that definitely places a lot of limitations on yeah. on the the superintendents and the director of golf's golf and a lot
0: of the employees that work there they're not run like a business again and that ties into the ncaa as a whole it's it's two separate arguments here but it's you've saved me for myself on on well let's just hope more of a
1: whole. let's hope that the yale golf course yeah does not become a victim of everything that's happened in 2020
0: and talk itself into a circle like i just did up next completely different course and one that is going to be run like a business. The new headquarters of modern golf, the Silicon Valley of golf. It sounds more like an amusement park. We're talking about PGA Frisco. This is like a mini Disney World for
1: golf. Yeah, no pandemic slowing down the PJ of America and the people in Texas building this project. It's a five hundred and twenty million dollar mixed use development project that will be the new headquarters of the PJ of America. The PJ America is moving from Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, to Frisco, Texas. When this facility gets uh, completed, it'll have the, it'll have the. Uh, Tons of buildings for the PGA of America to run their uh, staff out of. But it would also have three golf courses, two 18-hole championship-caliber golf courses and a 10-hole short course.
0: Short course alert.
1: Yep. If, you, if you're building a new facility and not doing a short course, wh- what are you thinking? But $75 million of that $520 million is going towards golf course construction. Incredible. The East Course, which was announced as the 2027 PGA championship site before – Earth Was Even Moved is being designed by Gil Hance. The West Course is being designed by Bo Welling. Our friend Roger Meyer, who a lot of people know from Valhalla Golf Club and his terrific work there, is the Senior Director of Golf Maintenance Operations for the PGA of America and PGA Frisco. Boy, that is a very desirable job, and they could not have hired a better person than Roger Meyer for that. So he's been there on site every day as construction's being done. Uh, I was looking at some of the construction stats. Uh, 60 miles of drainage will be on the east course. 30 miles of drainage will be on the the west course. This is just a a gigantic Texas-sized project that – We'll have a lot of people talking. It already has a lot of people talking. I can't wait for it to be finished. Uh, Yeah, it's going to host a major championship. It's supposed to open in 2022, so there's going to be a lot of time to ease into the, the growing and the agronomics. They don't really have a, uh, a deadline where this is going to be rushed, which should be great for the condition of the, of the golf courses. It's probably the most exciting or one of the most followed new courses being built. Anywhere in the golf business, I know the Sheep Ranch just opened at Bandon Dunes mm-hmm. recently. But this this is uh, this is very intriguing on a lot of levels. They could not have picked a better uh, head agronomist than Roger. Uh, hundred thousand square foot putting green. They're going to have an Omni Hotel there. It's going to be a public course, so any, anybody can play it. Just super super fascinating. And yeah, we just talked about the problems at Yale. Uh, th- there are no problems with the PJ of America right now and PGA Frisco.
0: And you look at it, I mentioned Disney World a couple minutes ago, this is going to be 660 acres, Disney World is 30,000 acres, but Disneyland is only 85 acres, but you're looking at, I was curious, what would cost more, do you think, playing both courses at PJ Frisco when it opens up, or getting a two-day pass to go to all the parks at Disney World? And I think it's it's a toss-up. We obviously don't know the costs at PGA Frisco right now, but a two-day Park Hopper Pass uh, when Disney World opens back up here in phases uh, starting after July 4th is about $300. That's probably going to cost about $300 with a cart to play both courses, I would imagine. It's probably pretty comparable. I would rather play
1: PGA Frisco when it's 120 degrees in August in Frisco, Texas And shoot 175 on 18 holes, so that would be, you know, times that by two, shoot a 350 aggregate score, then go to Disney World.
0: I have parents who love Disney and go quite a bit, and a daughter who loves Disney and finds any excuse she can to go see her Grammy and her Gramps. And so I have been dragged to Disney. And if I never go to Disney World again, it will be too soon.
1: Yeah, and there are a lot of things to like about this project. It's going to host a Ryder Cup, too, at some point. I believe maybe 2032 is maybe what I read. Uh, The PGA is going to run tons of junior events there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The PGA League championships are going to be there. Uh, There are going to be a lot of youth programs in and out of there, especially at the 10-hole short course. I think this is great. There's going to be an eight-mile concrete road circling most of the property. During major tournaments, the pass will be used for – Tournament, um, transportation—you know, getting your carts through there, your food and beverages, tournament infra- infrastructure, all that type of thing. But for the rest of the year, the path will be open to the public as part of Frisco's hike and bike trail. So how cool is that? These people that don't even play golf are going to be running and biking and walking their dog or child through there and see this awesome golf facility that that's going to have forty-six holes, including. Of course, it's going to host a major championship. It kind of reminds me of Chambers Bay. They have a, a multi use trail going around the property. So uh, this is just an exciting project on so many levels. And I, like the fa- I I love the fact that it's going to be a public golf course and have that public trail park aspect to it too.
0: Well, as, a, as we both hike and, and run. So I'm sure whenever one of us gets down there, we'll probably try to incorporate a full eight-mile run around the, the entire loop. One other note about PGA Frisco is that there's another adjacent 2,500 acres slated for further development under a master plan by Hunt Realty Investments. Hunt Realty Investments was referenced most recently, I think, in Golf Course Industry magazine in the November issue. They were the group that initially funded Cornerstone Club in Colorado, which was the first of three clubs I wrote about that had been saved by either very exuberant, enthusiastic, and organized homeowners associations or new ownership. So great, great, cool-looking course out in Colorado, extremely private cornerstone, saved from uh, depths of of overgrowth and, and the wild taking it back. And now Hunt is at work on lots and lots of development next to PGA Frisco. So we'll stay in the Metroplex for our next story? Uh, the PGA
1: Tour is coming back, so by the time this podcast drops, we'll be two days away from the resumption of the PGA Tour season. They're playing the Charles Schwab Challenge at Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, just an iconic facility, old-school, very difficult golf course. Uh, Scott Ebers is the superintendent there. Uh, he maintains bent grass greens in Texas in the summer oh my, you got to be really good to do that at the level that the Colonial Country Club members expect. Uh, 16 I think it's, it's either 16 or 14 of the world's top 20 players are going to be playing in that. It's, it's, it's an awesome field. That'll be uh, an indication that things are slowly coming back to normal, I think. Seeing live golf on the Golf Channel and CBS this week, uh, we know Scott Ebers and team will do a great job. It'll be, it'll be a different feel. Uh, there are going to be a lot of logistical challenges with hosting a televised golf tournament and people coming from all over the United States to to play in this and and support it because of everything that's happened with COVID-19. So it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. And then uh, some more PGA Tour news that affects agronomy. Mirfield Village here in Ohio is going to be hosting back-to-back PGA Tour tournaments in July. And July is a – it's stifling in Columbus, Ohio in July. So Chad Mark – and team uh, really have a daunting task. They're going to host what would have been the John Deere classic, which got moved out of state because Illinois has been slow to get things back. And they're going to host a, that tournament uh, Workday has stepped up to sponsor it. They're going to have a 156 player field. And then a week after that, they're going to host the Memorial tournament, which, which is an invitation on 120 players. So, you know, the only thing I can think of that's comparable is when the Pinehurst team hosts the, the men's and women's U.S. Opens in back-to-back weeks in June of 2014, which was my first year at golf course industry, and and Bob Farron and Kevin Robinson and John Jeffries and everyone associated with Pinehurst did a tremendous job with that. Uh, this is this is a daunting challenge for Chad Mark. You know, fortunately, Mirfield Village has a lot of resources that they're able to mobilize quickly and also Meerfield Village is going to be going through a major Jack Nicholas led renovation. So that that starts this summer too. So you're going to hear Muirfield Village a lot in the headlines. And you know, Chad Mark is actually profiled in a story in our June issue done by our outstanding contributor Lee Carr. She wrote about how taking a coach approach can really help you with leading a golf course maintenance team, and Chad Mark was one of the the agronomists she interviewed for the story. Chad Mark is a former high school basketball coach, so she talked to Chad. She talked to Ken Nice at Bandon Dunes, who's a former high school basketball coach, and she also spoke with Craig Callahan, who's a ski coach in Colorado, so... Kind of circling back to the beginning when we talked about your cover story for the June issue, we're g- we also have this fabulous story about lessons from coaching that can help uh, superintendents and assistant superintendents lead their teams.
0: You mentioned a minute ago the 2014 efforts at Pinehurst on number two when they hosted the U.S. Women's Open and the U.S. Open in consecutive weeks. That was the most recent instance pro golf tournaments were held on the same course in consecutive weeks. For the record, that has not happened in the almost six years since then.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a daunting challenge. I'm sure, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Chad Mark has placed a phone call to, to Bob <laughs> Farron and the team at Pinehurst and uh, asked them, you know, h- how do we handle this situation? But yeah. but they'll figure it out. Like, it's a talented team. There are a lot of resources yeah. at Mirrorfield Village. Uh, it's going to be interesting to, to, to see how that course plays from one week to the next. You know, usually the Memorial Tournament is at, that first week of June, so it's a bit of a later date, and I suspect that it'll be fabulously conditioned. I mean, I've been fortunate in my six years here. I've stepped on some tremendously maintained golf courses and we'll never rank them or compare them, but it would be very, 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 very hard to see a golf course that's in better condition than Muirfield Village is on a day-to-day basis.
0: Four varies. That's high praise. Yep. Before we get going, that's the last headline, but before we get going, I shared a little bit about my personal life. Guy, you've got a little news as well. You are a workaholic. You tend to be in the office. I don't know when you get in here because- I'm just good at faking it. Okay, you're normally in here by the time I get in in the morning, even when we're not in a pandemic, Uh, and you usually stay in the office most days until at least 5.30, usually closer to 6, if not later, but you've been heading out a little early about 4.30 on Wednesday afternoons. And I'm not 100% sure what you're doing on Wednesday afternoons.
1: Well, we'll probably talk more about this as the summer progresses. Uh But with us not traveling as much, at least here in the short term, and being closer to home, I did something that I've wanted to do for years. I joined a golf league, Matt. It's Wednesday night. Uh, It's with a group of friends that... I went to Myrtle Beach with last year and we were planning to go this year and that that trip got wiped out in April. And it's been an absolute blast. And we'll talk more about this on a later Greens with Envy.
0: Because there there are some tremendous traditions that are going on. Now, you don't have to mention his name because we don't want to drag the innocent through the mud. But I am interested to hear You and your playing partner this past week, this last Wednesday, were the top two players in the league in terms of handicap, basically the one and two ranked players in this league. And you lost by a stroke under some, shall we say, interesting conditions. What happened? He had some beer in the cart, I understand. We don't need
1: to go too much into this, but it was basically like Phil Mickelson and Henrik Stenson at Troon a few years ago. It was one of those duels, Matt. Uh Uh-huh. And nobody cares what I shot because they're here for our readers.
0: I don't care what you shot. I love the story. (laughs) I didn't do it. (laughs) As I understand... Beer got spilled on you. It wasn't
1: my beer. It yeah, wasn't my, your beer. I'm my not saying playing it was. partner dropped a can of beer and it exploded all over our golf cart. Like if the people working at golf courses don't have enough trouble sanitizing carts and getting them ready for a, a quick turnaround, that happens. It was a total accident. Uh, it was Miller Lite. It was. It, it happened. I believe on th- these are nine hole rounds. I believe it happened on the seventh hole, and it. It smelled the rest of the round, and I'm sure that the staff at the golf course that we played at uh, sanitized it and disinfected it right away. But, yeah, that's the last thing anyone needs at a go- working at a golf course right now is
0: beer being accidentally spilled in the cart. But that stench of Miller Lite, it got into your head, and I feel like this is almost some unintentional gamesmanship that he was able to just mess with you with two holes remaining and, and throw you off your game, and he winds up winning by a stroke. Well, I did miss an eight foot par putt
1: on the eighth hole and then a six foot birdie putt on on the ninth hole.
0: I I'm blaming the Miller Light.
1: I would never blame the superintendent or the golf course maintenance crew no, of course not. for a miss putt. The Miller Light, though. But would I blame Beer? Mm-hmm. Nah, I'm still gonna take accountability <laughs> and blame myself.
0: <laughs> oh, it's good to be back recording this in the studio. This was fun and uh hope you guys are are out there having a little more fun. I know we're 3 months into this and this is going to be a very different season for a lot of people, a lot of clubs both public and private, daily fee courses. But you know what? As I said at the top of the episode, you can only handle and hurdle the challenges in front of you. And you can have empathy and understanding for other people's challenges, but you yourself can only handle the challenges that you have to hurdle that are placed in front of you so do your best and have a wonderful season i'll be back next week with a new episode of off the course the podcast about literally anything not having to do with golf have a great great conversation with the superintendent lined up for that one i think you guys should have fun with that one be back in two weeks with the next episode of beyond the page going a little deeper into the stories from our june issue a little bit on the cover Uh, One of our columnists talking about It Is Your Time to Shine and maybe a little uh, Caddyshack talk as we near the 40th anniversary of that movie. And in three weeks, Guy will be back with episode number 48 of Tartan Talks, four full years of conversations with golf course architects. Until then, he is Guy Cipriano, the new editor-in-chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine, I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of GCI. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you soon again on the Superintendent Radio Network.